Captain. Our computer is picking up a strange signal. I don't want any baloney, magic tricks, or psychological mumbo-jumbo. Errors in time and space. Greetings, Liminards! Broadcasting to you from a location outside of time and space. This is Liminal Unlimited. I'm Kyle Thatcher. I'm Jennifer Thatcher. And we're here to bring you everything weird and out there and spooky ooky. Mm-hmm. I think I coined that phrase. Probably not. But uh, we're, we've got, a, I think, a pretty good show lined up today. Uh, what are we covering, honey? Today we will be discussing the missing 411 phenomenon slash theory slash conspiracy theory. Yeah, and and we're not going to stick strictly to like you know David Politis's missing 411. We're going to talk about a, a few different things, but just in general, strange disappearances, right? Right. Right. Now some of those are going to overlap. Um, but basically, we want to talk about it. Not, not so much that we're putting forward um, that, oh, yeah, we, hey, these are definitely supernatural, paranormal things. But there are elements to the disappearances that are just plain weird, um, that leave it open to speculation about what could possibly have been going on with these people right right a lot of it just doesn't add up doesn't make sense there's so many unanswered questions and, and in we some don't cases know what happened to them right and in some cases it, it's things that uh you would have expected that either these people would have been found in the cases where no, nothing was ever found of them or that they would have been found a lot quicker mm-hmm you know that 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 the scenario, the environment, the characteristics, and the the search involved should have come up with something. You know, we know that people go missing all the time, right? Right. Um, people go missing a lot more than we think they they should in the modern world. But um, sometimes these things happen, and you know, some people it's just fate conspires against them you know they go missing and because of a slew of reasons they're they're never discovered but every once in a while you have a case where somebody goes missing and you know you you can rule out that oh it was uh when they're out in nature you can rule out in some cases that it was an animal you can rule out and when it happens to somebody in a certain urban setting that it was an abduction or something of that nature. Strange things happen, and we're just here to basically say, like, hey, look at this, you know? Is there a possibility, however far-fetched, that something odd, out of the ordinary, or even possibly verging into the paranormal or the supernatural happened that that may have contributed to this person 
going missing in the first place, right? Exactly. All right. Well, how about first we do, I have a little update from last week's episode before we get deep in the weeds on the missing. Okay. Um, I have an update from last episode. We did talked about the Philadelphia experiment. Now, I do have to crack a book here. You're going to hear some pages. Um, and basically, last episode, if you didn't listen to it, we talked about the Philadelphia experiment and the craziness that went on there about a ship being transported during a government naval experiment from the port of Philadelphia to a port in Norfolk and back again, and all kinds of weird things happened and breaches in time and space, etc. I found, I just happened to be looking through a book, looking for weird stories for us to talk about, and I just happened to find um, a, a small little blurb about a location in Montauk, um, a military base called Camp Hero. Um, we may cover this in a future episode because there's all kinds of weird conspiracy speculation things as to what goes on at Camp Hero. But um, it's an old base. It was commissioned in 1792 by George Washington. Oh, wow. Um, but where it ties in to the Philadelphia Experiment is apparently uh, at some point there were a couple of sailors by the name of Al Bielik and Duncan Cameron. And like I said, I discovered this after we did the episode. They uh, claimed, apparently, to have jumped from the side of the USS Eldridge while it was in quote-unquote hyperspace. Hmm. And... They say that when they jumped from the Eldridge, uh, they landed, and when they landed, uh, severely disoriented, it says, they landed at Camp Hero, so, and which is not in the same direction as uh, Norfolk. That's in New York, right? It's in New York, and New it's York. in Montauk, New York. And so they basically, they're saying, when everything went weird and haywire and they started to get transported by surprise, these two guys got freaked out and they're like, we're out of here, you know, and and just leapt off the side of the ship, thinking they would land in the water, I assume. Yeah. And next thing you know... questionable decision, though. Yeah, I don't know that I would have done that. I mean, that's a... That's a great way to get your, you know, full protonic reversal. Yeah, right. As the the saying goes, um, you know, and end up uh, obliterated into atoms. But these guys say they woke up, you know, kind of like wooey woo, uh, with headaches and who knows what, sitting in the middle of Camp Hero. Um, but people have speculated based on that account that. Camp Hero somehow had something to do, because, you know, according to the the conspiracy theories, Camp Hero has something to do with governmental experiments and strange events, and there's supposed to be hidden tunnels and all this kind of stuff, and there's a large radio antenna array at Camp Hero. You're going to hear our dog. Our <laughs> George decides he's going to do a full-blown uh, big stretch and Go roll around sleep. and make 
goofy noises. Um, there's a, a large radio antenna array there. And so people have speculated that the radio antenna array possibly was used as part of the Philadelphia experiment hmm. in some way, shape, or form. Right. So that's just a little quick update Interesting. to last week's episode. That's pretty cool. So why don't you you start us off, honey, and tell us, you know, give us some background as to missing 411 or missing 411-esque stories. So, Missing 411. It's a series of books and films by David Politis. He's a former police officer uh, with a somewhat questionable past. <laughs> He's now an investigator and writer. He started off um, writing books about Bigfoot, self-published books, and uh, formed a research group, the North American Bigfoot Search, uh, of which he is the director. Um, he has, right now, I think, 10 missing 411 books, and there are now three documentaries, which are very good, very interesting. Yeah, whether, very whether, well done. Yeah, whether, whether you question true or not, David Politis or not, and his, you know, what his, um, I guess his motivations are, mm -hmm. the documentaries are super entertaining. Oh, yeah, absolutely. So the name Missing 411, I don't think he's ever really explained what that's about, but most people assume it's like the number 411, which is what you would dial for information back in the day. So maybe it's, you know, information about missing people. Um, he's giving you the 411. Yeah, he's giving you the 411. I'm filling you in. That's right. Bro. And so he says that this whole thing started when he was doing research in a national park, I'm assuming about Bigfoot, and an off-duty park ranger found him, knew he was a writer, and expressed concern to him, like, hey, I've worked in a few national parks now, and I've noticed there's a lot of people that have gone missing, and the national parks don't keep a database of the people that go missing in them, which is interesting. And somebody should look into it. And then apparently a second ranger also came up to him and basically told him the same thing. So that's what got him started on this whole thing. And he has found so far over 1,200 cases, probably more now, where people have gone missing in national parks or just the general great outdoors. But for the most part, national parks or federal land. There's no database about these people um, going missing or what happened with them. And he's noticed um, a profile that fits a lot of these people. So people that go missing that have like mental illness, you know, maybe they went off on their own to do something. He discounts those. Um, if there was any animal predation or something, he dismisses those because those can be explained. But there are a lot of disappearances that can't be explained, and they have certain criteria in common. Now, they don't all have all of these, but they all have, you know, at least a few of these. So, the profile that he has come up with, with you know, through studying all of these disappearances, he says in 95% of them, canines cannot pick up a scent. Right. Or they pick one up and they lose it very quickly. Which is unusual. You know, if somebody's outside and they wander off, 
You'd think that, you know, the canines would be able to pick them up, but he said the vast majority of these, they cannot track them. Um, also, there's no tracks in a lot of the cases, and they have professional trackers, you know, searching for these people. In a lot of the cases, there's a change in the weather, either around the time of the disappearance or in the, you know, following day, which can hamper the search, possibly hamper the canines picking up a scent, but there's always some, you know, storm, snowstorm, rain, fog, something that happens around the time of the disappearance. Um, if the person is found, they're usually found in an area that has been previously searched multiple times. Mm -hmm. And he says that's not to disparage the searchers because these are areas that have been searched thoroughly. And then all of a sudden, this person's body, or if sometimes they're alive, is found like they were deposited there after it's already been searched multiple times. And, and in some cases, these are like well-trained Oh, yeah. Experts. Oh, yeah. Right. Right. A lot of the time, yeah, they have, you know, tons of people out there searching. Professional search teams, helicopters, um, drones, things like that. Um, the, the missing clothing and shoes. Most of these people, either they find clothing or shoes, or if they find the bodies, they're missing some kind of clothing. The average time of the disappearances is four in the afternoon. They always seem to happen in the afternoon. Um, now he discounts like mental illness, but a lot of the people that have gone missing have had some kind of a disability or illness, like a bad knee or, you know, a bad heart or, um, you know, some minor disability, um, which is interesting. Something, something that would make them, you know, somewhat stand out a little bit. Right. And it would make it less likely that they would like traverse 10 miles through mountainous territory, you know, <laughs> with a bad knee. Yeah. Um, if they are found alive, they often have a um, lack of memory of what happened to them, even of being found. They don't remember anything of the whole event. Oftentimes they are found in or near water. Um, boulders, granite, boulder fields play a big role in a lot of the disappearances, either where they disappear from or where they're found. He talks about a point of separation. So in a lot of the cases, these people disappear right after something happens. Um, you know, a group of hunters are out together and for some reason they split up. One guy's like, oh, I'm going to go over here and, you know, check this out. And then after that point of separation is when whatever happens happens he says almost as if something was watching and looking for an opportunity for them to separate and then waiting for that person to be on their own on their own to disappear them um distance traveled uh, there are cases of young children traveling eight to ten miles over mountains in the dark you know, with one shoe or <laughs> no shoes, um, just impossible distances for, you know, either a young child or an older hunter to, you know, from where they disappear to where they're found. Or super unlikely, right? Yeah, it'd, very it'd unlikely. Like way unlikely that, mm -hmm. you know, they would make yeah. that distance Doesn't or even, even think to travel that far given certain conditions. Mm-hmm. Oftentimes there's equipment malfunctions, so airplane or helicopter crashes, 
compasses will just spin in circles, um, you know, either during the search or, you know, around the time of the disappearance. Um, and then two big ones. If they are found deceased, the coroners often cannot determine the cause of death. And uh, the big one is geographical clustering. So he has found 62 clusters in North America where people have gone missing. The largest cluster is in Yosemite National Park. Yosemite, some may say. Um, and he said it's interesting. Yosemite is the only park that does now have a database of people that have gone missing in the park. But that was only after he wrote about it. And there was they, external pressure. Yeah, they came out with it. So that's interesting. The only exception is there is a band that runs from north to south, from North Dakota down to Texas, where there's a large gap where he hasn't been able to identify these kinds of mysterious disappearances, which is weird and interesting. Not sure why. Um, he also talks about how there tend to be, these people tend to fall into a few subgroups. So they are often berry pickers, mushroom pickers, sheep herders, and hunters. And most of the hunters, they're on either family property or land that they've hunted before. You know, nothing super treacherous. You know, they are prepared, they're experienced hunters. It's strange that they would just wander off and get lost or get into trouble and not be found yeah and i mean i'm not a hunter myself but having grown up around hunters there are uh i mean almost to a family there are places that you go you know that tr it's tradition right like you you know unless for some reason maybe there's a a change of ownership of a property or something like that, or there's like new restrictions put in place. For the most part, fathers to sons to sons, you know, grandsons down the line, they have established play. Hey, this is where we go every year. This is a place that we know, and they teach the the new hunters all the little places and spots, and watch for this, and go here, and this is where the game is, and. So many times they're going back year after year after year to the same exact place. In in many cases, you know, I know um, from uh, people that I knew and grew up with, you know, they would go hunt on properties where they were allowed to keep their stand there all year round, mm -hmm. you know. And so they would just go back and sit in the same stand every year. So it it's not like you know, hunters are going out and just walking willy-nilly through the woods. Right, exactly. Mm -hmm. uh, one last thing is often the FBI shows up, which is weird because they typically don't investigate missing persons cases. Sometimes they will for like a very young child if they think there's an abduction or something like that. But for the most part, they don't do that. So it's odd that the FBI has shown up for a lot of these um, investigations and they say that they're just there to monitor things um, David Politis thinks that they're they're creating a profile because something strange is happening so they want to be involved in the investigation so they can keep an eye on this phenomenon that's happening um, 
because you would think it would benefit them if, let's say, there was a serial killer mm-hmm. at work. Right. You know, or some other trafficking or, you know, serial predator type activity in a certain state or area or locality. They would want to be able to have a record that they could go back and say, well, that's weird. Another person in that same area went missing with the same characteristics, you know, and you know, now they have, they'll be able to more easily develop a profile if it's found that there's actual criminal activity going on. Maybe there is a serial killer in there. Uh, Lucy, are we, are we boring you? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, we, we apologize for the, the snoring. It's just, for some reason, this is the time when we go to record that the dogs decide that they're going to be the most obnoxious with their sleeping activities. And we have a we have a, a pug here who can't help the fact that her little nose makes way too much noise. Little Lucy. So yeah, little Lucy with her her snoring is is a little distracting. But hopefully, anybody driving, it's not putting you to sleep when you hear in the background this this soft, deep snoring coming from this little dog. Okay, so uh, David Politis. Um, he has these books, these documentaries. He also has a YouTube channel, the Can Am Missing Project, so like Canadian American Missing Project. So he has tons of videos on there. Um, he gets a lot of criticism. People think he's, you know, making connections that aren't there, looking into things a little too closely, ignoring certain things to make his theory fit. Um, taking advantage of, you know, these families and profiting off of their, you know, hardship and their, their loss. But then he also gets tons of praise from people for putting these people's stories out there and really caring about them and getting to know them and researching their cases and trying to figure out what's happened to them. So, I mean, he seems very genuine. Um, you know, I think he probably gets you know, a little ridicule because he believes in Bigfoot and things like that. But, you know, I do too. Yeah, so do a lot of people. Yeah, a lot of people do. And, and that's the thing. That's that's where I kind of uh, feel like I stand on it. It's not that, again, it's not that we're saying, oh, a Bigfoot took that kid or a UFO came and grabbed that hunter or anything like that. You know, we don't have any evidence to say that that happened. You know, and I'm big on evidence. I like to see evidence. If you're going to tell me that something paranormal happened, I want to see it. I want to believe, but you got to show me. Mm-hmm. And, but the idea that, well, if it's not a mundane causation, if it's not a mundane explanation, then it's nothing. You know, if you, it, well, you know, it could have been it could have been a predator okay but there's no evidence of a predator mm. well then it could have been an abduction okay but there's no evidence of an abduction no. well it could have been they just wandered off okay but this person couldn't have gotten as far under yeah, normal circumstances as what you would expect to have seen mm-hmm. and not only that but you know you have expert searchers who have done their utmost and still didn't find this person you know 
So when you start to eliminate the mundane, or if not eliminate, make it less likely, why in the world can't you be open to something that maybe you haven't thought of or haven't considered? Um, because one of the stories we're going to talk about today, uh, when we were kind of discussing this episode, you know, I, I said, like, the idea of a, a paranormal explanation to the vast majority of the nation would seem outlandish. But if you ask 10 people in the area where it happened, if it could have been something out of the ordinary, supernatural, paranormal, even cryptid, probably I would easily think seven out of those 10 people would tote in that area of the country would totally buy mm -hmm. that explanation. Oh, yeah. Because it sometimes it has to do with the fact that you grew up in an area where this is a known quantity. You know, whether whether it seems ridiculous to the outer, you know, um, more urbane world, to these people in this locality, it's a fact. It's a given. They either have seen something or they know someone who's seen something. Yep. You know, usually close friends or family who have seen something. And they are more than willing to believe that that is a possibility. You know, that something oogie-boogie happened to cause that disappearance. Yep. Or even that death. Definitely. You know. So, before we go pointing fingers and laughing at somebody that is willing to at least entertain those ideas, let's take into account how many people in our society, whether you think it's, you know, ridiculous, goofy, sad, whatever, how many people believe in things like Sasquatch? How many people believe in things like UFOs? How many people believe in things like ghosts? Mm -hmm. You know, because I'll tell you something, I believe I've believed in UFOs or UFO type activity for a long time. I don't know it, my my ideas have changed over time as to what they are, but for a long time I've believed in that possibility and and those stories. And you know, people will literally to your face ridicule you for believing that. And then the U.S. Navy brings out a video of a Tic Tac craft out flying their planes. And I would just like to, for anybody listening, say, well, yeah, who's laughing now? Mm -hmm. Whether that's a government project or actual some form of alien interaction, who's laughing? Oh, yeah, there couldn't possibly, that, that, that type of technology doesn't exist, you know? It's like, okay, yeah. In you your know. face. In your face, <laughs> you know? So the idea that people, whether David Politis is on the up and up or not, what, but the idea that somebody would point their finger at someone like him or like us for even just entertaining the idea that it possibly could, we don't know. I mean, the police haven't solved these cases. The FBI hasn't figured it out. Yeah. So. We're not going to sit here knows? and tell you we know what happened to these people. Right. But the idea that you shouldn't entertain something because you think that somehow that's mocking what happened we're not mocking these mm -hmm. events these events are horrible losing a child losing a loved one you know and and not knowing what happened to them 
yeah, you're, 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 uh, you know, in some cases, these are patriarchs of families, you know, these hunters that go out and are never seen again. These are not laughing matters. These are not joking matters. We are not here to mock these people. We may joke around the course of this episode, but we are not here to mock these people. We wish these people had been found at all, and in some cases found much earlier. Um, but the idea that we can't just talk about the greater possibilities when all of the mundane possibilities have already been explored and gone over mm-hmm. ad infinitum. Right. You know, uh, we, we, we should be able to talk about this and, and be allowed to make some, um, what might be wild speculations, but speculations in the interest of wanting to understand how these things happen. Some people just go missing. But for but some people go missing in such a way that it, it baffles logic and reason. Right, exactly. So I thought we could share a few of those stories and then uh, we could talk about the theories as to what, you know, may be going on um, with this missing 411 phenomenon. So the first documentary focuses heavily on the case of a missing two-year-old, Dior Kuntz, who was, um, he disappeared on July 10th, 2015, while camping at the Timber Creek Campground, 10 miles from Ledore, Idaho, with his parents, Jessica Mitchell and Vernal Dior Kuntz Sr. Also along for the trip were Jessica's grandfather, Grandpa Bob, Robert Walton, and his friend Isaac Reinwand, um, who I guess the parents hadn't met until this camping trip. He was a friend of Grandpa Bob's. Grandpa Bob said he was a little weird, but a good guy. And he's admittedly a, a weird, weird guy. If yeah. you watch the, the documentary where, where David Politis covered this case... Um, yeah. And he does have a criminal background, some yeah. uh, theft, uh, battery, domestic violence. He was cooperative with the police. He you know, eventually spoke with reporters, and they, he had an alibi, I guess. They cleared him. They didn't you know, seem to think he was a suspect. So the parents' story is they were I, camping. And they're, and they're all odd birds in this story. Oh, yeah. They're, they're odd. All, they're all Yeah, And a lot of people question folks. why this case was even included in the missing 411 documentary because you know at this point there's a lot of questions like towards the parents there's a lot of inconsistencies in their stories they've either failed or had inconclusive lie detector tests which i mean i don't know how much stock i put in those anyway but you know it it may be more of a true crime type case yeah, and there's, as opposed and there's, and... to something unexplained but there are definitely weird circumstances behind his disappearance. Right, and there are a lot of people in that area that are, you know, very quickly will say, oh yeah, the parents did it. Oh yeah, a lot of people totally think the parents did it. I mean, when I see them in interviews, they seem genuine. I mean, they don't seem like they're lying, but I mean, I don't know. I like to give people the benefit of the doubt. And some people are just you odd folks. Some people just true. deal with things oddly. They handle things in a weird that's way. And, and they haven't found any evidence that they did anything. They haven't charged them with anything. Yeah, so. the cops would have been all over it if right. they thought they had anything to do with it. Right. So they were camping in Idaho. It was kind of a sudden camping trip. Jessica was her grandfather's caretaker. 
he loved to go camping in this spot. She didn't know how much time they had left with him, so she said, well, let's go camping. So they go to this um, Timber Creek campground. The story is they had gone to the store in town that day, came back. Isaac, the friend Isaac said, oh, I found this fishing spot. I caught some fish. And Grandpa Bob says, why don't you show him where it was? So the parents go off with Isaac and Dior starts to follow them. And his mom is like, do you want to come with us or stay with Grandpa? And he says, I'll stay with Grandpa. So she says, you know, Grandpa, can you watch him? Sure. And she watches Dior going back to Grandpa. Now, Grandpa at some time says he doesn't remember her asking him to watch Dior. And then in other accounts, he says, oh, he was right here. And then he disappeared. So that's a little fuzzy, too. And they said that Grandpa, I think, had a little maybe early touch of Alzheimer's mm -hmm. coming in, too, right. right? So they go to this fishing spot, which is about 100 yards away from their camp spot. Um, about 20 minutes later, Dior Sr. goes back to check on Dior and says, Grandpa, where's Dior? And, oh, I don't know. And He was right here. Yeah. Wait, where is he? <laughs> so this, you know, starts them searching. They're calling all over for him. Um, eventually, about an hour later, they call 911, and the search begins. So uh, they brought in... Um, a dog team they picked up a scent which led to a reservoir so of course their worst fears were that he had drowned they scoured the reservoir and the whole area around that he wasn't there uh, they thought possibly he was taken by an animal because there are lots of animals in this area but there was no blood um, no clothing he was just wearing some loose boots that would have come off if he was being dragged away by some animal and the dogs would have hit on something if an animal dragged him off. Um, so, and yet, yeah, they've never found him. I never found any sight of him or uh, clues as to what could have happened. The parents are adamant that, you know, this is what happened. Although, you know, they say they were in town that day and they've said, you know... Uh, we saw this guy staring at our son in the store. They found who that guy was and interviewed him. He was cleared. Uh, the dad said that he saw the Budweiser delivery guy, and the guy was talking to Dior and put him up in his truck, and they found the delivery guy, and he's like, no, I didn't. Uh, I, that's against company policy, and I park out back anyway, so that didn't happen. And this, this place was really, like, the campsite was really remote, Very right? remote, yes. Very remote. Middle and of nowhere. Um, I think there's only one road, one. Mm -hmm. one road to get in or out, right? Yep. So the idea of somebody just rolling up, it's not like one of these, sometimes you get these like roadside campsites where people pull in their RVs and stuff. This is not where they were. They were right. out in, you know, what, except for a picnic table and a fire pit was hardcore wilderness, right? Yep, exactly. So they would have noticed somebody... Yeah, come yeah, on. No one just drove up and was like, come here, kid, I got a puppy in here. You know, it's like nobody right. just drove up and grabbed this kid. Right, exactly. So, again, a lot of people think the parents had something to do with it. Maybe he was never at the campsite to begin with. But I find it hard to believe that the parents and Grandpa Bob and his weird friend Isaac would all be telling the same story, basically, and covering it up. You know, yeah, like to be, Grandpa to be, Bob and Isaac said he was there, and they 
have no reason to cover for them, so. Right, and to be honest, like, Isaac seems like the kind of guy that he may, he may not be a good person, he may be weak-minded in some way, you know, the, the guy is, like I said, he is an odd bird, um, very strange individual, and has a, has a very questionable past, but he does not seem like the kind of guy that would convincingly lie about the kid even being there in the first place. You know what I mean? I think that guy is the weak link. Mm-hmm. Right. He, he's the guy that would be telling the cops, well, maybe, maybe he wasn't there. Right. Why you know? would he... He's got no reason to lie people. for these people. Right, exactly. Especially exactly. if he's trying to clear himself, like knowing what his record is. Mm-hmm. If someone else did it, He'd be probably the first one to flip and be like, oh, yeah, Bob killed that kid, you <laughs> right. know, like. Exactly. Yeah. Yep. So. So that's the story of Dior Coons. And um, it is strange, and we hope that eventually there are some answers. Yeah. Because this little, little if you see pictures of this little boy, he was cute as a button. Mm-hmm. I mean, the idea that they lost this little boy in any way, shape, or form uh, is just horrendous. I can't imagine. Yep. Yep. So, uh, David Politis has also appeared on, like, dozens and dozens of podcasts and talk shows and radio shows and things like that. I was just watching one this morning, and he told a couple of interesting stories. So, the first one is about a woman named Connie Johnson. This also happened in Idaho. So, um, she was 76 years old. She was an exceptionally experienced outdoors woman. Her friends state this is a woman who spent literally the last 25 years of her life, most of them on foot in the wilderness. She had previously worked as a wilderness ranger for the U.S. Forest Service and as a guide for youth explorer programs. Um, At the time this happened, um, October 5th, 2018, she was retired and she was employed as a camp cook for Ritchie Outfitters which organizes hunting trips in the Montana and Idaho wilderness. So she was last seen, I guess, on the 2nd of October 2018 at camp with her dog Ace before the hunters left um, on a day and night trip. So the next day, the hunters had radio contact from Connie, but they were unable to understand what she was saying. Some say this was because of a weak signal, but that's speculation. And that was the last contact anyone had from her. So the hunters returned to the camp on October 5th. Connie and her dog were missing. Her coat was at camp, and under her coat was her gun, and then she was reported missing that same day. So the search would last for three weeks, covered hundreds of square miles. Searchers used humans and canines together with FLIR helicopters and a Forest Service plane, and nothing was ever found. The search was called off on the 16th of October of 2018. Now, an interesting thing, 10 days later, her dog Ace showed up 14 miles away at the ranger station where she used to work. Oh, wow. Which is weird. Like, how would he know to go there? How did he get there 14 miles away? He was a little the worse for wear, but okay. Um, Strange. Never found. Uh, what's even stranger is on that same day, 30 miles away, 
at Penman Mine, there was a film crew. And they were filming a show, it was kind of like paranormal type show. And um, one of the crew members, Terrence Woods, disappeared. Um, I guess they had been working there. He was 27 at the time. This is within the same time that she, like, after she went missing. Yes. In the, in the, and th 30 miles away, you said? This was on the 5th of October, so this the same day that she was reported missing. And this was 30 miles away. Uh, Penman Mine. Uh, they were filming shots for an episode of Gold Rush, Dave Turin's Lost Mine. Um, so I guess what happened, he was 27... Um, and he had gotten up to, I guess, take a leak. <laughs> and so he, uh, went over to the edge of this embankment and it said he looked up and he had a funny look on his face and then he just started running down the cliff. What? Took off like a rabbit. What? He just ran off into the woods and was never seen again. He looked up. Got a weird look on his face. Took off into the woods. Uh, his, you know, the crew, his friends said they'd known him for years. Came out of nowhere. They, like, did not expect this of him. They have no explanation for what happened. Uh, it was pitch black. Shortly after, it started to snow. Um, so, again, they had two searches going on in the same county on the same day. This search lasted for five to seven days, and... You know, neither one of them were ever found. Now, this is this is full speculation, but it's kind of crazy. Like, what if he saw something and she saw something? Because mm -hmm. they're only thirty miles away from each other. You know, out out in the wilderness. You know, if, if there's something, if there's something that happens in the sky, there is easily a chance that two people, even thirty miles away from each other, might see it. Mm-hmm. So what if he sees something and she sees something and it draws them in some way like to against better judgment to want to go check it out. That's total speculation, but that that is so weird that she would go missing with her dog, you know, and 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 the fact that her her coat and her weapon are there if she's as experienced as they say like she would not be going anywhere out into the wilderness without the proper attire or a weapon right you know um unless something drastic motivated her you know or even motivated the dog if the dog took off after something and she just took off after the dog without thinking you know mm-hmm but it, it's it's very that that's strikingly odd to me that she would just disappear off into the wilderness, and, and at the same same day, this guy, you know, see looks at it sees something, who knows what, and he just bolts into the woods. You know that's that's super weird. Yep, definitely. Uh, he also told a story about a man named uh, Ron Gray, who was from Massachusetts. He went missing November 19th, 2008. He was 62 years old. And this was also in Idaho, southeast of where Connie Johnson had gone missing. 
He was a former Marine, uh, experienced elk and deer hunter. He had hunted this area before. He was carrying a GPS device. Um, they had 50 searchers, canines, helicopters. Never found him. Hmm. Idaho. Not going there. Yeah. Love your potatoes, There's but... Lot... Nope. How do you like them potatoes? Not at all. <laughs> I am not, not interested in going to Idaho. Thank you. These potatoes have too many eyes. <laughs> <laughs> and Weird. now, interestingly, um, so this, he actually talked about that one and these next two on uh, one of his more recent videos from like six days ago, I think. So he talked about Julian Sands. Julian Sands. That's, that's right. I actually forgot. I, I kind of want to, being that I'm a horror movie fan. Yeah, uh, it's very sad. Julian Sands. Uh, I I think he's actually. I mean, he has he has a bit of a niche style, but Julian Sands I feel is probably one of the more underrated actors mm -hmm. out there. This is a guy that I feel had enough talent to have a long career and I, I'm not sure exactly why you know he got kind of put into like lesser roles over the years but I mean I grew up this is this is Warlock this is you know the doctor from Arachnophobia you know probably his, mo probably his most critically acclaimed one of his more critically acclaimed roles was in um, Boxing Helena uh, with uh, Cheryl and Fenn um, and the fact that he's gone missing for me as a horror movie fan, growing up watching him in movies like Warlock and Arachnophobia, um, that's like that that hits at my core. Like I want them to. I know he's he's he cannot probably possibly be alive now, but I want them to find Julian Sands mm -hmm. so bad. Like yeah. bring that guy home, you right. know. And David Politis says that he does think they're going to find him. Like you know. Eventually, probably in the spring when things thaw out. Like, but right now, I mean, it's mysterious, you know, and and it it kind of fits some of the criteria for this profile. And that's not to say that I mean, from from all accounts, the conditions on Mount Baldy, it's Mount Baldy, buried. California, is where he went missing. Which, by the way, is my new nickname for you, <laughs> Mount Baldy. Oh, jeez. Nice. So I like it. <laughs> they call me the mountain. Um, you don't want to know what the baldy bowl is. <laughs> God. So, by all accounts, conditions on Mount Baldy are have been treacherous. Yes, uh, especially within. So, in the previous four weeks, two people have died. And there were 14 search and rescues due to the dangerous conditions. Right. And right before he went missing, there was a woman who was, at least by the account that I read, an experienced hiker mm -hmm. who fell to her death Yes. Uh, in on Mount Baldy. So, now Julian Sands was an experienced hiker. I never knew this about him before mm -hmm. this came up. He was an ex a very experienced hiker, hiker and climber. and mountaineer. Yeah, like he was, yeah, he was an alpinist. Yeah. He was like, he climbed some really tough, tough mountains. And so so it's it's been described that he was hiking. Mm -hmm. So they, Alone. That alone, which is not... Not recommended. Yeah, you know, yeah, always... Especially someplace like that. Hey, Boy Scout rule, you know, buddy mm -hmm. up, yeah. right? Always have a buddy. 
Um, but the idea that a guy who had as much experience as he did would go to this place and go hiking by himself. Um, you know, as I've told people this story, there are some people who said, well, you know, maybe he went up there and maybe he didn't want to be found or something like akin to that. I don't know. I'm not going to speculate on any mental, you know, dispositions. But the idea that with his experience, he went up there and was willing to hike in those conditions by himself, was willing to go up there uh, and go on a quote-unquote hike as opposed to a climb mm -hmm, or something of that climb. sort. Right. Um, you know, as treacherous as the conditions were, I almost feel like that's the type of... And given this person who was an experienced hiker just fell and died before him, and I've known people who have been on a what was considered a simple hike and had horrible things outcomes. Happen. You know, things happen. Conditions are treacherous. I would, I would hope that somebody of his experience would have been able to tell what was mm -hmm. good, a good idea and what was a bad idea of where to go. Right. Um, so, I mean, I have a, I have a feeling that this is most likely a more mundane event. Right. And, um, but David Politis does say that this area is a cluster zone that he has identified. Several people have gone missing in this area that he's written about. Um, in this case, there were heavy storms the next day, which right. hampered the search. They had to call off the search because of the treacherous weather. That same day, 10 miles away as the crow flies from where Julian Sands went missing, another man disappeared, Robert Gregory, 61 years old, um, described as a very cautious man, an experienced hiker in, in, in exceptional shape. Uh, this is in the area of Crystal Lake and Mount Islip. Wait, wait, wait. Crystal Lake? Not that Crystal <laughs> Lake. <laughs> I mean, maybe. <laughs> may, maybe that's what happened, but I, I don't think so. Anyway, he had been to this area many times. He even mapped out his route and gave it to his family. Oh my gosh, like, yeah, like, you know, super planner. And haven't found him. Again, the next day, big storm. Uh, you know, they couldn't really search for him. But, like, they have his route. Where is he? So now five miles further east of Crystal Lake, where Robert Gregory, Gregory went missing, in 1998, another man went missing. His name was Jonathan Ajay. He was an L.A. County sheriff. And he was on his daily run at a place called the Devil's Punch Bowl. <laughs> and he disappeared on his run. Um, they searched for him for weeks. He was never found. The local sheriff's department started a task force because they thought maybe he was targeted because of his work as a sheriff. You know, uh, some kind of criminal activity. Who knows? But they didn't come up with any evidence that this was a, a criminal act or that he was targeted in any way. Um, and David Politis said in uh, one of his books, uh, Missing 411, Devil's in the Detail, 
that many people go missing in places with the word devil in the name. So that's another interesting thing. Although I will say that usually the place gets the name devil because bad things happen there. Well, yeah. You know. Right. Either because it's a treacherous place or things bad things happen for no good reason or it's a portal to hell possibly possibly but i will say that when when the julian sands story broke that the first thing i said to you was mm-hmm. like oh my god like well, it took me a minute but I, I read it and then i was like oh my god julian sands is like a missing 411 oh i thought about it immediately yeah and I didn't know if that was an, a hot spot. I was hoping it was, but I really, really couldn't find anything about that area. And I was disappointed because I really wanted to make my Mount Baldy joke. <laughs> Georgie, be quiet. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> so anyway, do you want to talk about theories or do you want to tell your story first? Um... Well, yeah, let's let's do the story that I looked up uh, okay. first. Um, now, this is a this is a very famous story. This is the story of Dennis Martin, who was a, a six year old boy uh, on June fourteenth, nineteen sixty nine. He and his brother, and his father, and his grandfather. His father's name was Bill. They went on a Father's Day excursion. Uh, up into Smoky Mountain National Park. This was a, a Father's Day tradition for them. They would go up there every year. His brother had been there previously. This was Dennis's first year going on this particular hike. And um, in one of the articles that I read, they talked about how this is sort of not an uncommon thing for people of that area that this was actually, it kind of mirrors a traditional um, farming, ranching thing that they used to do. They used to, like, drive cattle over the mountains and stuff on a yearly basis. And so this is, like, kind of a throwback. So there's a lot of families that go up into the mountains at certain times of year to kind of remember these familial ancestral ties. Um, now I don't know if specifically that's what they were doing, but it was a Father's Day tradition to go on this hike. And there was a certain, uh, loop. It's called the, the Russell Field Spence Field loop that they were doing. And it starts out from a place, a very kind of common picnic area, trailhead area called Cades Cove. They start at Cades Cove. They hike down, uh, one trail to go to Russell Field. Then you hike across to a place called Spence Field, and then you hike back up another trail that goes back to Cades Cove. Uh, during this hike, you go up elevation. You're going up onto the Spence Field sits at uh, near the top of part of the mountain range. Um, it's it's high, you know. It's up there, but it's not like you know some kind of crazy alpine thing. Um, but the trail, according to what I read from comments from different uh, hikers and people uh, who have been to 
um, that part of the Smoky Mountain National Park and been on that loop, it, it can be a rugged. You know, there are some places you, you, you know, you really have to watch your step. Um, now, this was Dennis's first time going there, but he's six years old and, you know, supposedly the most rugged part of the hike is getting from Cades Cove to Russell Field. And that was what they did on the first day. And somehow, uh, you know, Dennis, six years old, was able to handle the roughest part of the trail. They got to Russell Field and they camped for the night. And that first leg to Russell Field through this like treacherous area, that was going to be, that's like the guy's time. That was Bill the father, the, the grandfather, and Dennis and his brother. And then when they got to Spence Field, they were going to join other extended family members who were doing the same sort of thing, but I think they they took a different route to get there. Mm -hmm. You know, what was slightly like kind of the back leg of the route, which was a little bit easier. And Spence Field at the time was this, it, it was on top of the mountain. It was this kind of open camping area. It was an established little camping area there in the park. And so they get there on the second day and it's a shorter trek from Russell Field to Spence Field. They get there on the second day, they set up camp, adults are doing the adult things, and there was another uh, family that was up there that had children. So Dennis and his brother are playing with those kids. And at some point, they get this idea, won't it be fun if we like hide and jump out and scare the adults while they're like getting everything set up for the camp and some people some reports say you have to be careful when you're reading up on this stuff some say they're playing hide and seek by the accounts that I read from people who were there uh, first person I also you can actually find like the full case file the FBI has the full case file online so if you re want to read up on what the FBI has you can actually find that. Um, but it seems like the the actual story was that they were going to scare the parents. Now, here's where it differs. Some people think that Dennis was with his brother, but according to the information that I found, and some there was one report that said that um, the brother told Dennis to take a shortcut. That's and that doesn't seem to match up with anything. That the, there was no shortcut needed here. This was literally they were going off into the edge of the campsite to hide behind like rhododendron and stuff, and then they were going to jump out and scare the adults as they came by or something. Um, but what they did do was they told Dennis to go hide behind a different bush because according to what I found Dennis was wearing a bright red shirt and they were afraid that the red shirt was going to give him off so it's like okay here's like little brother he's wearing this bright red shirt they're trying to do this fun whatever little game they're going to play on the parents mm -hmm. and they say well Dennis you go hide over there because you're going to give us away right and so but 
here's the problem with the whole thing is Bill Bill Martin watched them go hide. <laughs> like it was like this was not a huge secret that they were going to go hide and jump out, you know. Mm-hmm. So he watches them go hide and he watches Dennis go hide behind this bush. And uh at some point the kids come out, ah, you know. And but Dennis doesn't. And after five minutes, Bill realizes Dennis didn't come out from behind the bush. So he's gone. He's out of sight for five minutes tops. And that's when Bill Martin goes right over to the bush where Dennis was hiding to find him, to look behind the bush. And he he walks over fully expecting to find his son like playing in the dirt or something behind the bush and he's not there and so immediately you know i mean this kid's been gone for no more than five minutes out of sight on the just on the edge of the campsite and they're called they start calling they start you know looking around in the edge of the campsite you know in the general direction that he went and when he's not responding, that's when Bill Martin runs for like, I think they said uh, almost two miles down the nearby trail. So the direction that Dennis went would have been in a similar direction to this trail. So Bill's thinking maybe he kind of wandered that way and got turned around or something. You know, so he's running down the trail, just calling for his son, just screaming his son's name, and not hearing anything, not seeing his bright red shirt huh. anywhere. Um, Dennis is gone. That triggers. Uh, the grandfather then makes the hike back to Cade's Cove to go alert Rangers to get help. This happened at 4.30 in the afternoon in June. I, I did a little bit of looking into the thing, and you're talking sunset was not officially until 8.51 p.m. that night. And that's when the sun sets below the horizon there at that time. Now, you're, you're still going to have some light till they figure about like 9.30 right Mm -hmm. now a storm did move in that evening and according to the people that were there it kind of poured it was like a big like boom just dropped a bunch of rain Um, which fits with the kind of david politis's missing 411 profile and it, it hampered the search but they were trying to search that night for him um so but you had you had a good chunk of daylight you had like four hours of daylight, you know, given maybe some clouds rolled in and things, but you had four, about three and a half to four hours of daylight there where they were looking. Mm-hmm. And the kid was only gone for five minutes. Right. And they cannot find this kid. The next day is when, now the, the according, I looked up, I actually went and I went down a deep rabbit hole on this story and I looked up like 
weather histories and, <laughs> and all this kind of stuff. Now, there's some people that say it got real cold that night, but according to um, now, this given this was up on the mountain where it can be windy and things, so maybe it was a little bit colder, maybe there was a little bit of a temperature difference. But I found like a weather history and it said it only got down to about, you know, because of the rain and everything, you're talking like a humid evening. It, it only got down to about 70 degrees, uh, according to the weather history that I found. Hmm. Um, and then the high the next day was 81. So given he, he would have out there in the elements, he would have gotten soaking wet and everything. But not until the next night did the temperature really start to kind of drop you know the next the the record i found that the next day's low was 68 um which you're going to start to feel cold especially if you've gotten wet overnight and everything you know unless your clothes completely dried out the next day you know you're going to feel cold that night Mm -hmm. um so the next day is when the the search effort really gets rolling and as word gets out that a six-year-old is missing in Smoky Mountain National Park, people start showing up. So that within the next day to two days, they've got over uh, 300 people up there to search. Wow. You're talking a uh, local Boy Scout troop came out and they're searching. You're talking uh, National Guard, Tennessee National Guard came out. They're searching random civilians are showing up to search now within the uh, third to fourth day so now uh, if he hasn't had water by this point we're talking like trouble but there's there are nearby water sources um, if he was able to get to a creek and we'll get to some evidence that he probably did but by the third or fourth day a uh, a group, a platoon of Army Green Berets show up oh, wow. because they were training nearby and they heard about this and they said, we want to go find this kid. So the Green Berets are out there looking for this kid. Now, the the dogs aren't having a lot of luck, um, which is not uncommon, as we've talked about in the profile, but also, I mean, you expect after a rainfall, there's not going to be as much scent. But they do, they do catch on to a set of tracks. There is a set of tracks uh, down, uh, they, they get down about uh, almost a mile down the mountain, on the other side, which which there is a trail that goes down that way and like a little creek that goes down uh, through there as you get into the valley below. And they catch on to this set of tracks and they f- they're able to follow those tracks for 300 yards. Now this is down on the North Carolina side because the trail they were on follows the state border. Down on the North Carolina side, they find these tracks, follow them for 300 yards till they get to where uh, the little stream comes through, the little creek, and the tracks stop at the edge of the creek, and they're, they seem to be unable to pick up the tracks again. The odd thing about the tracks is that one has a shoe 
and it's uh, uh, the reports differ, but it uh, it seems to have been like what was considered an Oxford style shoe print, and the other is barefoot. Hmm. Now there's a lot of hay that's been made about the prints because according to the park service and seemingly only the park service they claim that when they uh, they took casts of the prints and when they showed those casts to the the parents supposedly the parents said those look larger than Dennis's feet and they then attribute it and I'm not sure why they attribute it to one of the Boy Scouts who was out searching. Yeah, that makes no sense. Well, there's there's a there's a former park ranger who was actually part of the search, and he's a tracker named Dwight McCarter. And Dwight McCarter says that explanation to him made no sense from day one. And he says that, number one... If it was part of the Boy Scout troop, you would expect to see more than just one track. Yeah, they wouldn't have some random Boy Scout out there on his own. Yeah, a mile away. Over a mile, you know, he's he's out to a mile away from where the disappearance site is. Mm -hmm. Just one Boy Scout on his own. Number two, why would he be missing a shoe? Yeah. it's, It's just not logical. No. But at some point... And and I'm not going to ascribe, some people ascribe like some kind of nefarious thing to like the park service. I'm not going to do that. I think what you got is a bit of a game of telephone here. Is that somebody says something and they attribute it to somebody else and then it gets said by a third person and that gets attributed to somebody else. And, and it, it builds and builds fact. and builds till you get a ridiculous narrative mm. that when you then pull back and look at it, you're like, that doesn't... It's not, that doesn't make any logical, reasonable sense. Yeah. But this former ranger, Dwight McCarter, says from day one, he like he, he was like, what? What? Mm-hmm. And not only that, but when you take a cast of a footprint, a lot of times the cast almost, almost I'm not going to say 100% of the time, but a, a, a majority of the time, the cast looks bigger than the actual foot. Mm-hmm. Because you're getting like whatever whatever happened around that impression, you know. If you've ever walked in in mud, in it thick mud, it spreads out. Like you're not going to get an exact to the size of his, right. you know, foot. You know, but it's like, could it be close? Does it look like his shoe tread? Which they did confirm that it was. Mm-hmm. Now, some people have said also. Oxford style shoe they get hung up on that idea of an Oxford style shoe why would he be up there with Oxford like they're thinking like penny loafers or something now this is all a little bit off but I did find <laughs> I just happen to have a book from 1955 called first camping trip how to make it easier and more comfortable written and illustrated by C.B. Colby so this is from 1955 and it has a section in here called camping duds and in camping duds now given this was 69 when this disappearance happened and this is from 1955 but not a whole lot if you look at the way people dressed in 
in in 19 even in 1969 it fashion hadn't gone a whole long way away from the 50s there were a lot of people still wearing 50s oh, style yeah. fashions and in this camping duds they uh section they outline to to wear a moccasin toad or moccasin style uh shoe it's better to have uh, ankle support if you can but they specifically have a picture in here of what looks almost exactly like an Oxford-style loafer. Mm-hmm. So, the for people that say that what was that kid doing up there, you know, in that type of shoe, that doesn't make any any sense that those would be his tracks. That's exactly the kind of shoe that, especially a little kid. It's not like they had all the selection. Like you know, you couldn't go to Payless Shoes back then and they didn't have this giant selection of shoes for children you know there was like a couple different types of shoe you could get you know um you know i know my parents describing kids running around in nothing but saddle shoes when they were children so anyway so they find these tracks now they talk about not being able to find any sign of him beyond that some people speculate that he you know they didn't search very far across the creek but apparently the green berets were down they searched one of their teams searched that area and the green beret commander was quoted as saying if our guys cleared it he wasn't there now you can make a lot of speculation about the you know the government the military whatever I trust that if the Green Berets looked for this kid and they say he wasn't in this area or that area, I mean, I trust that they their whole mission was reconnaissance and things at that time. They were supposed to be the guys who you would want out there in the woods looking for somebody. Right. Um, but yeah, the Green Berets can't find him. Nobody can find this kid. This guy, This kid just vanishes. And they searched a 20-mile, like a 20-mile radius around that site and could not find this kid. You have people saying, oh, you know, I saw this weird guy, saw that weird guy. When I, I read through the FBI file and the FBI file, the FBI stated, and literally most of the file is them saying, we have told Mr. Martin over and over and over again that we don't see evidence of a federal crime, which would include kidnapping abduction. Mm-hmm. So the FBI is saying, we don't have any evidence that your son was taken. Now, for people that say, oh, a predator got him. There's so many people I saw online that said, yeah, oh, bear, mountain lion, bobcat, something got him. Something, uh, something got that kid. Well, number one, if anybody's ever seen when a, a cat, even a big cat, takes down prey, like the idea that there, that number one, that could have happened within, you know, spitting distance of camp, I find laughable. Without anyone hearing something or seeing something. Number two, that that occurred. And there was no sign of something grabbing him 
and any kind of a drag or tussle or anything. Blood. If you've ever seen what's left when a cat gets a hold of a bird, mm-hmm. you know, pounces and grabs, you know, a bird or whatever, like the idea that there's no signs near the camp of any predators, you know, stalking or otherwise, you know, I just don't buy, and especially grabbing a little kid and him making no noise. I don't buy it. Now, some people have mentioned that he was considered slow. His 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 IQ was maybe a little lower than the other kids. A a slow child just wandering off willy nilly. He's in sight of camp. He's in sight of his family. The idea that he just like, oh, I'm gonna go over here now. Like just wandered off. That just seems a little implausible to me. Again, I'm not attributing anything. I, I can't sit here and say I know what happened to Dennis Martin. Mm-hmm. But nobody can. Right. And all of the mundane explanations that people come up with, when you look at the full picture, don't make a whole lot of sense. I just don't quite understand where people are coming from when they try to say, uh, you know, they, they, oh, I know what happened to that kid. That this happened, that happened. Well, the FBI doesn't know. The Green Berets don't know. And I'm not going to say that I know, but I'm going to say that we I think know either. that kid seemed to make it a long ways away from that camp on his own. And, and if you, if you believe the tracks that led up to that creek, he had fresh water. Now, do I think that he's probably deceased? I think he probably is. But this kid just up and vanished. And I don't think that any of the common explanations out there for why this kid would have even been a mile down the mountain away from camp uh, hold a lot of water. So I, I think it's not without the the bounds of... Uh, plausibility to explore what else could have happened Mm -hmm. that would have made this kid just wander off now there's been uh also some some hay made about uh this ginseng hunter that in 1985 uh some ginseng hunter came forward and said that he found, supposedly, allegedly found, a set of skeletal remains uh, of what he thought could have been uh, a child. Now, there's a a problem, I feel, with this. Because, well, first of all, he found it up in an area called Big Hollow. Now, this is five miles away as the crow flies in a straight line from uh, Spence Field. Now, it's actually, if you if by trail, because if that's through like dense, uh, treacherous areas that you wouldn't normally expect anyone, let alone a six-year-old, a disoriented six-year-old, to get through by himself. By trail, even if you took the shorter of the two trails to get there, 
it's 10 miles. And, and I just don't buy that this kid trekked over 10 miles. And, it, and it, not only that, but it's in not the exact opposite, but it's not in the direction of where the footprints were found, mm-hmm. you know, down the mountain. It's like in a completely different area of the park. Now, they decided, they're, they're like, well, we're not going to not follow up on any lead. So they followed up on the, you know, and so they went up there and they searched Big Hollow and found no sign of these remains. Now, this guy claimed, oh, I, well, it was years ago and I, was a, I, I didn't come forward because I was afraid I was going to get trouble for ginseng hunting on federal land. You know, it was like a whole story. Now, you got to keep in mind, there was a $5,000 reward that had been offered since 1969 for this kid's return. Is it possible this guy thought that this reward was somehow still available? Mm -hmm. um, And maybe thought he was going to claim it by, you know, saying, oh, I found him. I don't know. I can't. the, The ginseng hunter is, as far as I could tell, is unnamed. I couldn't find this person's name anywhere um but it you know it the idea that he was that far away and, and in this kind of opposite direction you know and this guy's claiming 16 years later he found these remains they get up there there's no remains found some p i saw one uh article where they tried to say oh well it, you know it could have been scattered by predators well 1985, 16 years later, that's when, any, if it, there was any scattering to have happened, it should have happened well before then. Sure. You know, there's not going to be animals, even in whatever the, the number of years between when this ginseng hunter claimed he found it to when he reported it, um, scattering should have already happened. Mm-hmm. Well, something else that David Politis says, too, is things like, Leather shoes or rubber-soled shoes, guns, you know, they don't blow away. They don't get carried off by animals. But those things are usually not found either. Like, where are they? Right. You know, these people go missing with belongings. Animals aren't going to eat those. What, where right. are they? And there's some, there's some cases, I remember the one case that he, he spoke about. Uh, um, I apologize, I can't remember the, the name of the, the child. But they found the pants, and it looked like the pants had been, like, actually removed. Mm-hmm. Like, pulled down his legs and off. And a mountain lion or a bear is not going to do that. Mm-hmm. They're just going to rip through them. Right. You know, so it, it just doesn't, uh, it doesn't make a lot of sense. I don't put any kind of stock in this ginseng hunter's report of finding these remains. And, and I really actually don't think anybody else should either. The idea that people are pointing to that. And saying, mm-hmm. oh, see, they, you know, he's up there, you know, and this and that. Like, given, I don't know, I, again, I say, I think that he probably did die at some point. But I would not put any stock in that that yeah. story. Now, just to kind of finish it out, Dwight McCarter, the park ranger who was part of the searches, number one, he says that those footprints never should have been discounted. But not only that, he said that even after the official search ended, there were a lot of park rangers up there that did not want to give up on trying to find this kid. And they still had regular kind of patrols that they did where they would keep on the lookout for any sign 
of, of Dennis. And he said that within a few days, and it would have been past the time period there, like there was a certain, I think it was by day eight, they said they were already looking for like signs of scavengers in the area, looking for buzzards and things. Um, which I, you know, I, I feel if the kid did have access to water, that's a little too soon. Um, but Dwight McCarter says that um, after the official searches stopped, which I think was after like day 10 or 14 to 14, somewhere in there, they were still looking, really. The rangers were still keeping an eye out and looking through certain areas. And he says he caught a scent of, and you can take this for what you will, he said it smelled like something dead, but he said it smelled like nothing dead that he had ever smelled before. Bigfoot. <laughs> well, and that's that's where I'm I'm going. That you can you can take that to mean that he smelled a human body because maybe he had never smelled a human body before. But when he tried to report that in to the ranger service and say, "Hey, I have a we're smelling something up here," it was him and a couple other rangers. Hey, we're smelling something up here. It smells like death or something real heavy smell and he said the direction it was coming from it would have been coming from the direction they were in a different on a different trail and the way the wind was blowing it would have been blowing up and out of the area where those tracks were and up over spence field to where he was and he said we think we're going to go check it out. He said he's told, no, don't bother. That area was already searched. That's a, there's a dead crow. A dead crow. A, a dead crow is somehow creating a smell that he can smell from a distance on the wind. And not only that, but Dwight McCarter says, he's like, I know what a dead crow or a dead bird smells like. And that was not this. He said it was, a, it was a smell like I'd never smelled before. So take it for what you will. Either he's smelling the unfortunate remains of Dennis, or he's smelling something else, something strange. Bigfoot. Mm, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> so, Definitely Bigfoot. So... You know, so that was day, days and days later, he, he catches the smell and is, is instructed not to follow up on it. Um, and, and to kind of put a button on it, like I said, kind of at the top of the show, we, we like to, you know, for some people it's fun to troll and mock people who believe in certain things. But like I said, in the Appalachian Mountains, in the Smoky Mountains... If you put out there the idea that either a feral wild man or a Bigfoot or the Tennessee wild man or something else possibly could be up there grabbing or abducting or doing whatever, if you ask people in that area, I would, this is a, a very mild estimate, I think probably 7 out of 10 people would absolutely support or believe that concept mm -hmm. because they have lived up there and lived with these stories and this stuff for a long long time and they would not outright discount something like that happening mm -hmm. but 
I'll leave it up to the listener to come to their own conclusion, you know, believe it or not. Right. And so that takes us to the theories of what could possibly be going on here if it's not an animal, a serial killer, child abductor, you know, whatever. Because if it was something like that, there would be evidence of that. The dogs would be able to get a scent. There'd be blood. There'd be some evidence of the, something. The FBI. The FBI would yeah. be following a lead saying, we think it's this guy. Right. So, you know, initially, David Politis seemed to hint that, you know, maybe it's a Bigfoot cryptid type thing. And Bigfoot, you know, there are people who think he's an interdimensional creature. So, you know, it, it, it might not just be something natural. It could be, you know, jumping in and out from different dimensions, taking people. There are Native Americans what. who say when they see Sasquatch, when they, people have observed Sasquatch, and they, they say they've, they've even taken steps. Native Americans and other hunters, trackers, saying they've tried to intercept what mm -hmm. they think is a Sasquatch or a Bigfoot, and there have been reports of strange flashes of light. Yeah, and then they completely lose the track or lose sight. Right. In Missing so. 411, The Hunted, one woman was a hunter. She talked about seeing something, and it looked almost like Predator, like that cloaking effect. And she could see that shimmering shape jumping from tree to tree. That's right, Georgie. Yes, That's Georgie. the sound it makes. Yes, That's the good. sound the Predator makes. <laughs> and in the latest documentary, Missing 411, The UFO Connection, he seems to hint... You know, that there's also a connection to UFOs, lights in the sky, you know, maybe it's something like that. And then you think, you know, people say, well, maybe this is the national parks or the federal government trying to cover up these disappearances. And why would they do that? And he, oh, I know, it's just incredible, George. Shut up. So he said that he, on one of these shows, he was on a panel or something. He was pulled aside. He wouldn't say by whom. And, you know, they were talking about this, like, what reason would they have to cover this up? And he said, well, think about, you know, when you were a kid and you had an ant farm and you were watching the ants, you know, do their thing. And you think how easy it would be for you to just crush them, but you enjoy watching them and seeing what they're doing. And, you know, just think about that. What, what if we're the ant farm and someone's watching us? What would they want with us? You know, are they coming and just taking people you know who knows what they're doing but learning about us or and is that something that maybe the government doesn't want us to know about um well there's and uh, i'm sorry to interrupt you but there mm -hmm. there uh we heard the one story from the uh border patrolman there's a and i'll, I'll find his name we'll, we'll cover some of those things on another oh, yeah. another episode uh with more information but there, there's a, a border patrolman who has said that, you know, he saw the strangest things during his time with the border patrol and uh, including, um, you know, Sasquatch type uh, primate activity. And he claims that he spoke to people from the Department of the Interior, you know, uh, from, uh, you know, land management and stuff who... Uh, told him off the record privately that they were tracking these creatures, mm -hmm. you know, and and that's why they were in the area, you know. And we know from there's uh, down on the Navajo reservation, there's rangers 
you know, they're they're basically the Rangers, uh, the Navajo Rangers are like their SWAT team, search and rescue, like guys like all rolled into one. And they actually had uh, people assigned to investigate sightings of these creatures, you know, and these guys say they saw stuff that no one could ever, you know, that, that, that's just not, people don't want to accept or believe, you know, mm-hmm. so it's not, it's not, it's not as outlandish maybe as right. people want to believe. So another theory is portals, which I find personally terrifying. The idea you could just be walking along, driving down the road, and all of a sudden you hit this portal, poop, and you're gone. Like, you're who knows where else. I've read stories of, you know, people on a hiking trail and somebody was up in front of them. They go around a corner and when the other person gets there, they're gone. They just vanished into literal thin air. And uh, David Politis said that he uh, used, he was on a show called Vanished, and uh, through that show he met with a theoretical physicist named Dr. John Brandenburg, and this conversation happened off camera, and um, this doctor, this theoretical physicist said, there are physicists around the world studying portals right now, seeing if they can arm them, meaning... Can we point some device at someone and create a portal and make them disappear? Um, or use them for travel. Or, or use them for travel, right. Uh, so, and he's a consultant for NASA. And he says this is being studied right now. Portal phenomenon and how to create them and use them. They just caught an upper atmosphere whirlpool in, in Hawaii on camera this blue whirlpool type thing just shows up up in the sky and you know the the given uh, claim is that you know it has something to do with a SpaceX launch you know but it's this strange hmm. blue whirlpool formation that's you know? weird so yeah so there's there's all kinds of weird like i mean skinwalker ranch we're going to do a whole like series on skinwalker oh, yeah. ranch at some point but skinwalker ranch is believed to be this area where it's like the interdimensional uh nature of it like the the, the the fabric between this side and the other side of whatever it is is mm-hmm. super thin yeah. and things are coming and going at random or maybe not at random mm-hmm. you know right um, so th- it's these ideas are out there e- even mm-hmm. the biggest experts you know the guy uh people that worked on project blue book and you know people who used to work for the government are believing now that ufos are interdimensional more than they mm-hmm. are interstellar right right and then uh the final theory is feral people and the idea there could even be clans of feral people living in the national parks, which maybe they wouldn't want us to know about. The hills so have these, eyes. Yeah, so these feral people are taking people for whatever reason. And this is interesting. I was on Instagram, and I was just did a search for Missing 411, and I found this Instagram page called Creepy Green Texts. And uh, this entry was on there that I thought was kind of fitting. 
So it says, okay, so I'm in the mountains in Oregon, very remote. Hadn't seen a car or soul for hours. One road in, one road out, 50 miles from any town, pure wilderness. I'm fishing, about two beers deep. I hear a woman scream, help. Mind you, I ain't seen a person like all day. I look up. I see her on the other side of the creek, wearing fucking rags, dirty as shit. Looks like she's been out there for months or years. Initially, I thought, yep. This is a missing person or lost hiker. Adrenaline kicks in, very shallow and passable creek. I go to cross. I'm going to save the day. Then my gut just tells me something is off, so I stop dead in my tracks. I yell back, I've got my car just up this hill. Let's get you out of here. She stares back blankly. No response. Doesn't seem happy to see another human. Not overjoyed to be rescued. Nothing. Zero response. Literally just staring back blankly. I yell again, do you need a ride back to town? Still no response, just blankly staring, looking right through me. I look behind me thinking she sees something, but nope, nothing there, just my car up the hill. She screams again, help, help, yet again. I can get you to town, you need to come this way. Can you cross, are you injured? Super shallow creek, knee deep at most, very slow moving water. Still nothing, just keep staring. Now I'm creeped the fuck out. I yell, hello, if you need help, I can get you back to town while I'm signaling with my hands to come here towards safety. Dude, out of nowhere, she just turns around and sprints off deeper into the woods. I pack my shit and fucking leave as fast as I can. That person didn't need help, rescue was 10 yards away, never even responded to anything I was saying. There's a 10 out of 10 chance she was trying to rob me or lead me to my death. After some research, I found that there are multiple reports of this sort of thing happening in the wilderness. A glowing orb, a feral human, or anything really, trying to provoke you to chase it deeper into the forest, only to go missing yourself. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's, you know, there's like, uh, uh, even, even, you're just talking about the, the, the stories of like, you know, the hiker, or the, the hitchhiker in trouble, or the, you know, they, they, they're driving down a lonely stretch of road, and they, there's a, some type of vehicle parked there and then oh like a woman laying in the road you know and all this kind of mm -hmm. stuff and what they want is they want you to get out and approach and you know try to assist and then next thing you know that's when you get ambushed yep. i mean that's kind of like a classic mo so you know it's it's on the 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 mundane side of things you know we we like to talk about the the portals and alternate realities and but but Overall, I mean, you know, there is just a, a creep factor to the idea that there could be groups of people living out there in the wilderness, you know, kind of their own society. And and for whatever purposes, they might, you know, that's I'll leave that up to the listener to speculate, but they're trying to draw you in and next thing you know, you're 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 taken you're you're gone without a trace mm -hmm. you know which i mean you might as well have stepped into a portal you know yeah so definitely creepy for sure all right well do you want to round us out with one more uh quick story honey yeah so our final story uh it's the strange case of keith parkins in ritter oregon and this um is a Reddit post. There actually is a missing 411 Reddit page, but this is on the Locations Unknown Reddit. And um, it pretty nicely sums the story up, so I'm just going to read that. Okay. 
On April 10th, 1952, two-year-old Keith Parkins was playing with his older brothers on a cattle ranch in Ritter, Oregon. While playing near a barn on the property, his older brothers headed back for lunch, leaving Keith at the barn. When his mother realized Keith hadn't returned with his brothers, they headed to, for the barn to find him. To their shock, Keith had vanished without a trace. So this was around 12 o'clock lunchtime. Um, Edna, Alan, Keith, and his two older brothers were visiting Edna's parents in Ritter, Oregon around Easter. The property they were visiting was a cattle ranch, and the surrounding area could be considered cattle land. Edna described the conditions that day as cold with patches of snow on the ground. Keith and his older brothers had gone to the barn to see a new calf. When Edna called the boys back to the house for lunch, the two older brothers came back, but not Keith. When his brothers were asked what happened to Keith, they said, oh, he went around the barn. So Edna and the brothers headed back to the barn to look for Keith. When they got to the barn, Keith was gone with no trace of where he went. Realizing Keith was gone, a search started within hours. Edna noted that it wasn't organized like modern SIR teams, but the initial people searching knew what they were doing. They started a line of people spread out within speaking distance and started searching. At the peak of the search, it was estimated that over 200 people were in the field searching for Keith. The search continued through the night and into the morning. Uh, at some point in the search, around three miles from where Keith was last seen, searchers found footprints that walked through a herd of cattle. Outside of these tracks, no other clues were found on Keith's disappearance. So around 7 a.m. on the next day, a searcher found Keith alive in Skull Canyon, roughly 12 miles from where he was last seen, face down in the snow with his hat and coat beside him. His body was stiff from the cold and he couldn't move. His face had also been scratched pretty bad, according to his mother. His clothing was also ripped up, possibly from trying to get through barbed wire fencing. He was flown to a nearby hospital via private plane and eventually made a full recovery. Key takeaways from the case. It was lunchtime when he disappeared. And it was about 7 a.m. the next morning when he was found. He would have had to have gone 8 to 12 miles in 19 hours. Uh, his clothing was ripped and his face had scratches all over it. What could have caused this? At the time, law enforcement suspected a barbed wire fence caused this. But in interviews, Keith mentions a cat scratched him. Could he have had an encounter with a cougar? This is one of those cases that really makes you pause. How could a two-year-old travel that far in sub-freezing temps overnight? What happened to his face and clothes? My leading theory is he had some encounter with a cat overnight, and the only reason searchers found him alive was the searchers kept pushing the cat further through the night. Um, he doesn't remember anything about this event, sadly, but good news, he was found alive and survived. The whole, you know, cat thing... I don't really buy because why would the cat not have just eaten him? Right, <laughs> like, right. That doesn't make any sense to me whatsoever. So that's a weird one. How did he get that far away? What happened? Yeah, and and uh, this is one of the ones where Les Stroud, the Survivor Man, um, if anybody's ever seen that that television show, mm -hmm. uh, Les Stroud is a survival expert. A wilderness survival expert. Um, he had a show, uh, and his whole thing was going into places uh, completely by himself. Um, he would have, you know, the ability to call for help in the case of an emergency. There were people, you know, within certain distances of him, but he he was not like, you know, some people, you know, talk about other survival television survivalists 
uh, staging things and having camera crews with them. Les Stroud would film everything on his own. And even when not filming for a television show, when he's prepping for uh, shows or appearances or writing books or things, he, he will go out for days on end by himself or maybe with just one other person and will apply these survival techniques uh, to get an idea of, of what he wants to do for his next project or see what works, see what doesn't. Um, so he got involved on this and he's researched this case of uh, Keith Parkins. Parkins, right? Mm -hmm. And uh, he said that, first of all, the idea that a two-year-old little boy would just keep walking through the night. There's, there was no, there were no lights. There, there's nothing, no way to see where you're going. And, and I believe they even said like the, the night when this happened after he disappeared was not like a moonlit night. It would be pitch black, and it's not flat ground. You are climbing over things, going through brambles in some cases. Like, if you're following where they suspect his path took him, this is not terrain that a two-year-old would, you know, and you can say, oh, two-year-olds have a lot of energy and, you know, all this kind of stuff. And what a scared little two-year-old boy in the middle of the night, in the dark, you know, Les Stroud has said... If it was me, a grown man who knows what he's doing in the wild, I would have hunkered down and waited for first light. The idea that a two-year-old did all this during the night is a little preposterous. Mm -hmm. And the idea, like you said, that it was a predator, like a big cat, uh, you know, a cougar, mountain lion, something like that. The idea that that... that animal would have taken him this whole distance or whatever and, and the idea that you know it would that he would be found alive with just some scratches on his face no like you know if if he's being carried by something he's been he's being carried if he's being carried at all by it's a predator by bigfoot <laughs> he's being carried in its mouth with uh -huh. its teeth right usually they do that by the neck of whatever it is that they're carrying. So they're not talking about he had puncture wounds around his neck. Yeah. They're talking about some scratches on his face. And they, they were, from what I uh, you know, saw uh, people talk about the, you know, them being fairly serious scratches. And he did apparently mention that the cat scratched me. But that, you know, That's who's to say that was not an encounter with just a, a feral cat of some kind? And as a two-year-old, he decides he wants to approach and play with the cat. And then the cat, you know, got ticked mm -hmm. off and scratched him up. Or maybe it was a small bobcat or something, you know, but that for whatever reason did not mess with him any further than that. It was just a two-year-old making something up. Or a two-year-old saying... What scratched your face? Yeah, and he's in the dark and he can't see and he got scratched mm -hmm. by barbed wire and yeah. he just, in his imagination, thinks it must have been a cat because mm -hmm. he knows cats scratch. There's any number of possibilities, but the one possibility that I don't buy is that a cougar grabbed this kid... Dragged him 12 miles. Dragged him 12 miles and just For decided fun. not to kill him and eat him. Yeah. I just don't buy that. And neither does Les Stroud. 
mm-hmm. <laughs> who, who would know a little better than other people would. Um, and not only that, but just to make mention, Les Stroud himself has come out and said that he believes that there are Sasquatch-like or Sasquatch-like things in the woods because he has had two encounters of his own that absolutely blew his notion of what he understood about the wilderness in North America and scared the living crap out of him. Uh, one, one instance, he says, one approached during the night out of the pitch black on his campsite as he hears, and he says, and I, he's like, I've been in the woods too many years to not know what it sounds like when a bear's walking up on your camp or when a cougar's walking up on your camp or any other, that's that that would be the sound that it would make as it was approaching your camp. Right, George, (laughs) to not know what kind of sound a four-legged animal makes when it's approaching your campsite and he says he heard in an area and he said not in an area that he he was out the place he was camping was not a place that was normally camped by anyone he was specifically out there doing research for one of his projects so he went out to where no one goes and he says a bipedal what sounded like a person walking through the brush over the leaves was coming towards his camp. And it wasn't until he made a bunch of noise that it stopped and then he heard it move away and retreat. Wow. But he made a bunch of noise to let it know that there was someone there ready to like defend their area. And then it moved away. So he absolutely believes that Sasquatch, Bigfoot, whatever you want to call it, that there's some type of bipedal primate out there in the wilderness. And he believes he's encountered it at least twice. Maybe two-year-old Keith Parkins thought Bigfoot was a big cat. And and took a walk with him. Yep. You know? That makes more sense to me than anything. Yeah. Yeah, and I mean, and, and one of the things that I kind of wanted to even mention is the idea that, like, you know, look at the stories of, um, and, and, and we can get into this more when we talk about, you know, Sasquatch or something, one of these episodes, but the idea that um, you have these events where uh, the children, children that fall into gorilla habitats at zoos and things, mm-hmm. and predominantly what you see, even in the case of Harambe, there are primatologists who viewed that footage after the fact and said that Harambe's um, behavior was not what they see as in aggressive gorilla behavior. It was protectionary mm-hmm. type behavior. There have been at least three instances in recent years where that's happened and the gorilla has wanted to protect the child. In one case, a gorilla actually taking the child to the doorway where the keepers come in mm-hmm. and keeping the child there waiting for the keepers to come get the child. Yeah, so the amazing. idea that a primate out in the wilderness would immediately necessarily be aggressive or violent, there's a good possibility that if an encounter like that were to happen in any of these cases, that that primate 
would very calmly and gently maybe try to take that child and walk off with that child like you know to you know as as if to say hey you know come with me come look at this you know um, and that child if not feeling threatened may be willing to more than willing to walk away with that creature yeah. um, so again we're not saying that that happened in these cases but i'm not saying it was aliens <laughs> but it was aliens <laughs> you know but but the idea that that something like this isn't plausible well there's there's more and more and more we're seeing that that experts even real hardcore experts are starting to become very willing to to believe that there's something there's something going on in the wilderness areas of the United States that we don't yet understand and that it's just hubris on the part of humans to believe that somehow we know everything that's out there yep. so that's where I leave it well, uh, honey, any any last things to say about the missing four one one? I would say check out the uh, documentaries; they're really interesting. I think the first two are both on Amazon. You can find yeah, they're Prime. they're out there. They're and on the, streaming services. You can find them. Rented the uh, latest one, the UFO connection, and they're just they're very interesting and very well done, very entertaining. Yeah. Again, we're not asking anybody to believe David Politis or any of these theories, but as we said, we've said in our previous episodes, we're all about the possibilities. And it's not to mock what's happened to these people. These are terrible cases. Um, uh, Keith Parkins was one of the lucky ones, you know, that he was found and found alive and, and not much the worse for where he's lived. He's lived a, a long life. Um, but uh, the idea that that um, we we should just rule out things when when none of the mundane explanations seem to fit you know um, we're willing to at least entertain the possibility that some of these things may be happening in this weird world of ours where we we really don't know everything and don't understand everything and we have not actually been everywhere no matter what we like to think and um you know we just we hope uh anyone out there for anyone that that um has anyone go missing um you know we we hope that everybody comes home okay um and and i think that's uh that's probably the best place to to leave it but but don't be afraid to think about the what ifs and and leave it open leave it open because that's the worst thing you can do is get tunnel vision about what happened to someone mm -hmm. you know especially in a case where they were never found and no remains were ever found um so that is our episode for uh this week um we appreciate everyone for uh listening and um we're not sure what we're going to do next week yet I don't think we've come to a, a determination. We kind of we don't know what we're going to do from week to week. Really, we kind of we have ideas of things we want to do, but then we kind of don't really decide till after we've done the the previous episode. What about near death experiences. Yeah, we can we can do that. We can we'll we'll know when we get there. I guess it's right. a Maybe we have to a surprise. We have to find out once we once we arrive. Um, but 
please, 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 uh, thank you for viewing. And please, that's right, George. Yes, we want to thank everybody for, for listening. Did I say viewing? I meant to say listening. Yes. Um, thank you for listening. And please, uh, don't be afraid to reach out to us. We want to hear your stories. Or if you uh, have suggestions of things we should cover or it, stories you've heard that we should look into. Exactly. Point us in the right direction. So please reach out to us. We have our, our Gmail, uh, liminalunlimited at gmail.com. Uh, you can also reach us on our uh, Twitter uh, at liminalunlimitpod. Or you can just search Liminal Unlimited Podcast. It'll get you there. Um, or we now have a Facebook page the liminal unlimited podcast uh facebook page and so you can reach us at any of those places and fill us in on anything that you would like to hear or if you better yet if you have a weird unsolved mysterious story uh that that you feel you know comes close to the boundaries of reality as we know it would love 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 to hear from you so thank you again for listening and we will see you on the other side thanks guys bye bye